Why, Julita Slacks, this is Kim Senkup Harvey, and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 5 of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. On this week's episode, I'm going to be sharing with you parts of my journey back to the Academy, a knowledge-sharing experience and creation practice called Salish Earthing, a small exercise I did at UVic about the ideologies and roles of the trickster and shifter in storytelling, and I'll close with a creative writing piece I did about a significant corner on my traditional territories. This is the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist, the Academy episode. On May 3rd, 2019, I wrote a blog post entitled, I'm going back to school. I wrote, in all caps, <laughs> with quotations. You couldn't pay me to go back to school ever! I said in 2008 as I sauntered my way out of my post-secondary institution. I was saying my forever goodbyes because I had been in formalized education for 20 years straight and I was done. And then I posted the classic Pocahontas gift where her hair is flowing in the wind and she's waving goodbye. I go on to write, I grew up in Langley on Quatland territory where there was this program at the local civic center called Hey, I'm Two, which is a hilarious name for a program and where I got my start in academia. After completing a year of intense studies and who the hell knows what, we were two. I then enrolled in Sunshine Preschool and was in kindergarten at the ripe old age of four. After high school, I went to UBC to do my BFA in acting at 17, a program that I loved and I met teachers who had profoundly impacted my storytelling practice that I left with that ridiculously obnoxious statement of never returning because I was so done with formal education. Of course, those were my final fucking words because eating them 11 years later would make it all the more humbling and hilarious. So as I eat some crow, I'm happy to share that I've officially accepted the University of Victoria's offer to enter into their 2019 fall intake into the Masters of Creating Writing program. For the next two years, I'll be splitting my time on the traditional terriers of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Lekwanen, as well as the Musqueam, Skohomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, to Stolo, and the Kwatlin, and I'm very honored. I'm extremely grateful to have two years of dedicated writing time in such a supportive environment. Many projects that I will complete for the, for the writing portion of while I'm there. I'll be also using my time to be innovating the indigenous creation method and be joyously drenched in research, learning and teaching. The plan is to have Break Horizons be my thesis project and knowing that UVic has the only indigenous law program in Canada, which was a big draw for me because of Break's intersections with indigenous jurisprudence, I'm also very happy to announce that my next commission is with Green Thumb Theatre and I'll be using my time at UVic to complete my first theatre for young audience artistic ceremony. There are a couple of writing projects that I'll be working on and I won't share with you quite yet because I need blog content for later. <laughs> The creative writing department at UVic is actually quite remarkable and I'm very excited to be coming into relations with them, especially with the news of hiring two new indigenous teachers, Associate Professor Daniel Geller and Gregory Schofield. I do have to say Lee Millet to a number of people who've helped make this possible. Stephen Heatley, the head of the department at the Theatre of, of Theater and Film at UBC for writing me one of my letters of assessment, and to Dr. Lindsay Lachance, the Artistic Associate of the National Arts Centre Indigenous Theatre Section for writing my second. 
Honestly, a big, deep, deep, big, deep switch and a yaw to you both. To the entire UVic Creative Writing Department for getting behind my application, and I'm so excited to share space with all of you. And finally, to the instigator. About three years ago, I wanted to deeply investigate how to achieve and churn out theatrical creative practice at a high level. So I cold called this person and he agreed to meet me at the creme de la creme place on the Clark Drive. In East Vancouver, and we've been meeting for coffee and chats ever since. He read drafts of Kemlupa, provided ongoing mentorship, and truly planted the seed to returning to school in any real way. He nourished this idea and absolutely made this academic opportunity come to fruition. And that person is Governor General, war-running playwright, friend, and now my graduate supervisor, Kevin Kerr. Kevin is an Indigenous accomplice who's breaking down systemic and institutional barriers to create opportunities to achieve equity for Indigenous peoples, and I'm so grateful. Kevin has done a lot of work to secure tangible support for me to create. He prioritizes his time to sit down with me. Even during the tech of one of his world premieres, he came and bought me a coffee. He makes offers of what he can do for me all the time. He embodies relational knowledge sharing, and I always look forward to our chats because of his deep humility and thoughtfulness to meaningfully want to engage with my practice. And I'm so stoked to hear about his innovations and work. He's so generous and with his knowledge and experiences. I also want to share that I too am breaking down barriers for Kevin. A few months ago, I found out that he'd never played Buck Hunter, that bar game with the orange rifles where you shoot digital animals that I'm obsessed with, and I just didn't think that was right. So I broached the topic in a safe and respectful way. I went to his event to make sure access wouldn't be an issue, and then when it came to playing, I made sure that I had a toonie to pay for it. This is what people need to remember. These settler indigenous relationships need to be founded on thoughtful, cyclical knowledge sharing pedagogies. He helped me get into school and I tried to help him not suck at level one of Buck Hunter. I think he was more successful at his offer, but that's beside the points. It's give and take people. So leave me like Kevin and let's do this. And then I have a gif of people high-fiving. My journey, particularly the last 10 months, has been quite unexpected, arduous at times, but ultimately transformational. I'm finding a peace in knowing I get to spend some time on the Salish Sea, following trade routes and interrelational journeys of my Salish ancestors. Peace, that I will have the space and time to center my creative practice and give the community more indigenous work to engage with. So I'm gonna start, quote, shedding down the limb even more than I already have. I'll be racketing down my community work, my consultation work, saying no to a lot more. And I hope the community can help support this decision because these boundaries protect the urgent work that I need to do for my people. Break and this TYA ceremony, as well as the other projects I have are are the love-centered joy that is healing for my people and I need to really put all of my attention there. I think this is an important teaching for us to all let our engagements with one another be nourishing, thoughtful, and with the intent to help BIPOC and other oppressed artists accomplish their desired outcomes and not just our own. The last announcements and all these evolutions and personally one of the most exciting for me is that I'm officially steering my wardrobe into a new thematic direction and the new aesthetic to represent the spatial cosmic nature of break and the other projects I'm working on is now retro indigenous futurism. What that means, we're not sure. But I think the first come from the grisly nature of Kamloopa and now we're launching into the cosmos. The other day I went out looking like an Apollo era astronaut and I think we're all better for it posted a selfie of that day everyone at no frills really appreciated that outfit i'm pumped to be headed back to school and don't even worry y'all won't even know i'm living in all these places because indigenous people know how to time and space travel the last time i moved to the island for a year my friend richard literally didn't even notice i was gone my new office is in the dining hall of the bc ferry buffet and the sailor sea is my new dance floor jetting out to get a new jansport and a pencil box peace
Also, this one goes out to my high school English teacher, who approached me as I dejectedly sat at my desk, looking at yet another assignment covered in red with a low grade that said, quote, Kim, you're just not a good writer. <laughs> with pride, gratitude, and deep humility, Kim. Don't we love eating our words? Why would I leave 2008 saying, I'm never coming back? I kid you not, I went to the graduate ceremony or the like theater BFA acting grad and I just sat in the Freddie Wood Theater and was like, I'm never fucking coming back to school. I was just done. I was just over it. I was just institutionalized by academia and I wanted to be a free bird and I've been a pretty pretty uh a pretty freeish person with regards to being outside any institutions or academy with any academic sense my training and my experience and my embodied learning after I left the UBC was uh hands-on experiential in the field on the front line which really set me up to be in a good position to go back to school I just want to say this here and now. I am so grateful to Kevin Kerr, who I would said on Twitter the other day, I was basically headhunted. The institution did all the academic, the administrative work. They supported me and resourced my time back at school. And I always feel like I have, I could call the chair of the department, the head of the department. I could, you know, Kevin and I have a really beautiful relationship in in terms of I don't know, we both say we always feel really nourished and, and alive after we chat. And I feel like it very much is a cyclical knowledge sharing environment where we just get to just like sit and theorize and, and uh, observe and investigate. And that's exactly what I wanted. And I will say, Kevin was so generous in terms of approaching me after I think I had gotten no grants. Um, and he said, basically, I just want to support you and I think I know how to do it. And then he went and did the work. You know, there are some conversations in academia about stewarding in black, indigenous and people of color. And I will say that getting us there is one part of the job, keeping us there, creating anti-racist environments, giving us opportunities to undermine the academy, to trouble the white imperial um, supremacy that happens in the academy is incredibly important. I feel like I'm particularly lucky and fortunate because all of the professors that I've had support me in this challenging of the way uh, teaching academia, Western notions of correct and incorrect are, um, they're supporting me in this troubling. And I would not continue to be at an institution if I didn't have that support. And I think the academy has to understand that this is incredibly important to create um, institutions that steward, have, retain, support, and champion non-white people who enter into their uh, programs and their departments. Special attention, equitable attention, our needs are different, you must learn all of those. And I feel just so grateful to be a part of UVic's um, Masters of Creative Writing program. I also want to talk to people about the fact that going back to school can feel very intimidating and as it should be, doing your master's is a significant amount of learning and research and studying, 
but I feel like if you've had a job and like I've worked for all levels of government, I've worked for NGLs, I've worked as a manager, I've worked as a director, I've worked as uh, program coordinators um, in a variety of uh, social sectors. And if you know how to project manage, if you have worked in theater and in artistic leadership position, know how to project manage, you know how to execute, you can go back to school. I feel fortunate that I had a mother who created a homework room for us since I can remember. And so we were really taught studying skills, but all that's on the internet, finding out ways of learning, find out how you learn. If you're a mechanical, visual, audible, um, spiritual, cognitive, physical, embodied, like learn what type of learner you are. And I firmly believe that is a part of any success that I've achieved. People constantly ask me, how do you churn so high? How do you produce? How do you know this, the scope of information that you do? One, I'm a compulsive learner. Two, I know how I learn. And so I can create environments that are conducive to knowledge sharing and me being in knowledge sharing relationships with organization, artists, entities, and beings. So learn how to be a learner. And I didn't do that at UBC as well as I should have. And coming back to doing your master's, um, I will say you can do it. Talk to schools. If you're an academic, go headhunt your next indigenous black or person of color student that's your next project not your thesis not your next short story not your next book you're in a position of power and now your job has transformed and your job now is in this situation to create anti-white supremacist environments in post-secondary institutions is to get black indigenous and people of color there and all my cousins sisters brothers allies and friends in the BIPOC community You can do it. You can fucking do it. On April 15th, 2020, I wrote a blog post entitled Salish Earthing, a creation class. I wrote, yesterday I handed in an assignment for my MFA that asked us to create a course led by Marita Deschel. I really enjoyed this course, even though it got totally pandemic interrupted. It gave me time to focus and organize some ideas that I've been working on, including the notion that I feel much more comfortable being called a cultural evolutionist and an indigenous theorist. Yesterday, we handed in our 12-week detailed syllabus, our teaching philosophy, and our teaching resume. By the by, teaching resumes are unnecessarily ridiculous, and I won't be convinced otherwise. It's as if the most pedantic person created the format. And then I posted a gift of Fred Armisen with a blonde, like wildly styled hair wig that says, But I'm smart! I go on to write, the course I created is something that I've been ruminating on for a number of years. I was looking through old grants this past week and came across a 2015 Canada Council application where I talked about, quote, unlocking the anthologies in my blood and, quote, discovering the stories of my people through land exploration. Now, I would not describe these ideas with the very um, <clears throat> doctriny, anthropologic vernacular, but hey, I was trying. My old terminology reminded me of Kim Tallbear speaking on the All My Relations podcast, which you should go and listen to immediately. 
I even recommend turning this one off and going and listening to it. I go on to write about saying old ideas differently today, that she wouldn't be shamed in some formative theorizing silence because we might say something differently than we originally did years ago. Please, like, go take a look at my first few blogs. Transformation of ideological language is a thing. So the sentiments and the ideologies underneath those imperial as term statements are very much the same. I was speaking to the conjuring of ancestral knowledge that has been embedded into our spirits, blood and land. Memories, teachings and experiences like a totemed into space and the universe reminds us of them via environmental activation. Don't understand? Go back to that restaurant you got dumped at or go back to the place where you were first kissed or the hospital you had your child at or the place you found out you lost a parent and try not to channel environmental memory. I will never return to the white spot on Dumfries because Jeffrey is a loser and that is the gospel truth. Moments in time get marked into space and a lot of the time into our blood. Why do you think those racist old spaghetti westerns leaned hard on the, quote, knowing Indian trope? I think it's because in some cases we fucking did know. And then I posted a gif of a native woman with electric lightning going through her past and ego in the forefront of the image. Anyways, I think we all have OGs, quote, an anthology of stories locked inside of us. And by creating conducive environments, we can ground ourselves, connect with our relations, and channel the knowledge, teachings, and stories. We become conduits as we deeply listen. Dr. Lindsay Lassange termed this thousands-of-year-old practice as presencing. Quote, the notion of honoring the timelessness of people's connection to our ancestors. Presencing is a practice that activates moments of resurgence through allowing one's heart, mind, and body to reconnect with ancestral and spiritual knowledge. This process is occurring all the time, whether we are conscious of it or not. When I take a retroactive look at the creation of Kamlupa, I made many, many trips to my territories, knowing the nourishment and generative spaces the lands gifted me. The times around the fire with my family listening to pines and the Chilco River echo under the stars. In 2017, I went to Aotearoa to, sp- to specifically be on land where I felt indigenous peoples are respected to protect myself and think of the methodology for being an artistic leader on that piece. That intentionality around land-based creative practice gave me the space to create community of practices. It laid the foundation for the treaty and breathed slowly and deeply into Kamlupa. When I went back to think about all this in the last term, I distilled it down to the foundational elements of what I have done and do to honor the relational bonds with the universe and all organisms whilst being on the land. How these two intersectional components are essential to grounding ourselves in this present with our temporal connection to Mother Earth and presencing our cultural knowledges. I call it Salish Earthing, our relational and land-based creation, creation methodology, an approach that embraces full-body listening, courageous exploration, and centers relational responsiveness to explore and deepen our ability to listen to the land and conjure ideas from physical and ideological earthing sessions to steward in our stories. Now, once the earthing sessions occur, we then totem them with our embodiments, sharing, and storytelling. The 12-week course, which really could be collapsed or expanded in a multitude of ways, honors and shares Salish storytelling, ideologies, and ontologies. And then the learner can do land and special work, spatial work to then design a personal generative relation-based process. There are a few stories about Break Horizons that capture this process. It involves traveling through Lilloet territory and copper presencing itself. But I'm going to save that story for the production. Come to the show and a talk back in who knows when. 2022 and I'll tell you how the copper breaking ceremony came to be.
I'm grateful that Marita held space for us to dig into our desires for knowledge sharing spaces in the academy and for me, in addition, this creation practice is something I'm excited to share outside the academy. A lot of the values, protocols, and practices are elements I share with the next gen of Indigenous storytellers so that they have methodologies outside the Imperial ones. I'm also so happy about the clarity I was able to formalize with my knowledge sharing philosophy, which I'm going to eventually put in full on my website, but for now, here's a portion. Knowledge sharing for me is about gathering peoples to hold space, trouble oppressive ontologies, and bear witness to all our ethereal relational impacts. I utilize stories to totem ethnospheric transformations so we can steward in a more balanced and dignified environment than the one we inherited. My objective when engaging with peoples activated in learning is to provide the space for creative grounding in their curiosity, listening, and storytelling, to nourish the interrelated cosmic bonds and support their active contributions to their own cultural heritage. Gathering, grounding, nourishing all our relations is the greatest story we will collectively create, and I'm honored to support participants and institutions holding space for this telling. I think post-secondary learning should be way more accessible, so I want to share the text on the syllabus I created, The Accident of Being Lost by Leanne Simpson, Indigenous Methodologies by Margaret Kovach, and Kandasoin, How We Come to Know by Kathleen E. Epsilon. I read both methodology books in my Lenonic course in my first semester of my MFA, and I think anyone working on creating methodologies, artistic, scientific, social, anthropological, historical, really, if you're using systems, you should read these books. Kovach and Absalon have been talking about relation and land-based research methods for a long, long time, because these practices are thousands of years old. I personally found these two books mystically igniting. They're more about, quote, research, but if you're looking to create, you can just replace research with your generative practice terminologies. These two books were foundational for me to understand the structural and formative practice to grounding ancestral story work. Simpson, this accident, is on their base is on there because of her complex storytelling ability to weave land and relations into her creations. Her embodied illustration of relational and lands-based practice is space-bendingly brilliant, and she's also really fucking funny. In a time when we might have to be physically distant, I think there is a nourishing opportunity to get intimate with the ideas and entities that live within ourselves. I know I've been spending a lot of time troubling and investigating my own ideologies, methodologies, and practices, saying hi to them, sitting with them around a fire, honoring them, letting them breathe, letting them go, and sometimes return. I send this energy to your spirit and hope these offerings might be of use. With deep love and in awe of your infinite stories inside of you. Kim. It was very important to me when I went back to school that I clearly communicated with my program that creating plays and artistic pieces and writing the pilot and a a feature were the kind of products or the tangible forms of a part of my practice. But what I really wanted to encapsulate the thesis of Break Horizons in was in a methodology. Now that originally became the fire creation methodology was the first one I wrote down and really the only one I 
thought or planned to and you can actually listen to that on season 10 of season one of the indigenous cultural evolutionist i read out the fire creation methodology but salish earthing came out as i was reflecting and doing deep land work after the fire creation ceremony and for me i think it's incredibly important that we have multiple avenues and we kind of totem we emblemize we capture the way that we create so that when i go to embark on a project or when i go and put my body in space there are multiple things within my you know medicine bag within my bundles within my uh, ceremonial kind of constitutions that i can embody to create work from my salish paradigm the salish earthing course was something that came to me when I was in my master's position to say how would you teach what it is that you do and also how would you allow people to kind of saturate yourself themselves and go into the practice of using your method or engaging with your class um, participating in knowledge sharing with you and for me one thing that I really wished academia afforded provided um, encircled was outside of the classroom learning uh, specifically for artistic practice and doing it in a way that isn't ableist, but in a way that isn't also um, white supremacist, which I think a lot of courses can be in terms of only providing learning environments in one way. And, you know, there are so many systemic issues around why most academic environments are uh, white supremacist in nature, but I am very grateful that my department is got non-white people and indigenous people and black people who are on the um, staff and, and, and teaching and professors who are put in those positions of power. And I know uh, Danielle Geller is so amazing. She has a loom in her office and Gregory Schofield, you know, beads in his class. And, you know, uh, Shane Book was like reading his poetry out and his slam work and his creative, like it was very embodied learning. And uh, my class with Lee Henderson was really great because he held space for, you know, critical discourse conversations on indigenous writers. I just feel so grateful for the environment that I've been provided because I haven't felt it to be white supremacist in nature overtly. I actually find that these artists and these creators and these writers are rooting their pedagogies within their cultural practices and teachings and open to hearing ways that I work. That was the other thing that I feel very respected within the staff. Um, Salish earthing is something that I would love to be able to do um, sessional work with, um, but also it, it basically is my embodied creative practice. It is the way that I go create. I've been doing a bunch of deep land work. I'm kind of in my summer semester doing field work. So I'm up on the Lillooet Nation. I'm on the Silcoteen. I'm heading up to the Silk Territory. I've been spending time on the Stolo, um, which are the five characters and nations uh, on the Shohetmik, um, the five characters in Break Horizons and all of their nations. So I'll get into that a little bit more on the Break Horizons episode, which is the next one. But basically, 
I wanted to engage in creation land-based practices to inform my characters versus me sitting in a room in a library reading a book going, I wonder what her disposition is uh, via land displacement and let me read it in this book. For me, it was inc- it is incredibly important that these uh, character builds, this narrative creation is land-based and... I know that that is how I feel most comfortable and in the way that I create already. And so I offer this and and if you want me to come hang out or talk to you a little bit more about this, I'd be happy to. But when I talked about my philosophy, it really is about that gathering, that grounding, that nourishing to honor and support everyone uh, for their truth and storytelling that this methodology can go beyond an indigenous perspective because what it does is hold space for everyone to build their own cultural heritage. I know a lot of indigenous black and people of color when they apply for professors positions or really in artistic worlds if they have a particular history or point of view teaching describing leading creating their own culture non-peoples of their culture go well you know can you teach not indigenous stuff? Which is such an oppressive and ignorant question. It's absolutely we can. Could Can indigenous people direct non-indigenous shows? Absolutely. It's an oppressively ignorant and white supremacist position to believe that that's not something they can do. For me personally, it's just not something that I want to. I want to direct Indigenous shows and particularly the ones that I'm helping curate and hold space with um, because I want to put in the fire methodology and the Salish earthing uh, methodology into practice because, like I said off the top, I feel much more comfortable in this kind of cultural evolutionist Indigenous theorist position because artistic practice, you know, quote-unquote writing, directing, acting is just one contingent to my holistic work as I serve my indigenous community. A big reason for this podcast, as I explained in season one, is that I think it's an extraordinary privilege that I get to be at the academy, that I get to be into an, in, in, in an institution of learning, and that as a good community member, as a good um, you know, cousin to my relatives and family and friends who might not be afforded this opportunity. The podcast really is to share teachings, understandings, and experiences that I have in a more accessible way than just the blog. And I wanted to share a little assignment that we had to do in a class, uh, again, Marita's class on teaching. It's basically teaching pedagogy, which is one of the only uh, creative writing master's program that has a required course for the master's students to learn, curate, develop, and embody because we have to execute in the course our own teaching pedagogy. A lot of the time, master's students are offered teaching assistant positions or thrust into teaching assistant positions with actually no teaching from the institution. You're just supposed to know how to be a TA. And I was really impressed that the UVic Creative Writing Department has a creative writing pedagogical course. So within that course, there was a small teaching assignment we were asked to do and one of them was to talk about gesture and notes we had a kind of a list we could pick from on doing a presentation 
And I decided because I wanted to make sure that every assignment I do in the academy is relevant to my work so I can investigate things, reinvestigate things, deepen my understanding of them or, you know, be inventive and go through innovation and offer new concepts, theories and ideas that I'm kind of ruminating on. I wanted to share with the class because it also helps me if my, you know, predominantly non-Indigenous cohort understand my worldview, which is also something that I think is really important for people who are not Indigenous or people who engage with my work can understand these kind of supernatural beings that a lot of indigenous playwrights presence in our storytelling and it's one of the things that i've written i've seen so many racist reviews assessments engagements of what tricksters and shifters were and so i just wanted to offer this kind of exercise and knowledge sharing um, experience i had within that class so i go quote character engaging with supernatural beings and stories primarily from indigenous paradigm Investigation to deepen our understanding of how trickster and shifters are used in Indigenous storytelling. To experience Indigenous theatre is to enter into Indigenous worldview, to be able to evoke, engage, honour and make meaning from movements, provocations and inductions of gestures and being in Indigenous theatre. We must shift our Western paradigms into Indigenous ones to effectively grasp the complex and unfolding nature of Indigenous story components. I use the term beings because their essences are not, quote, characters. They are real beings in many indigenous cultural mystical belief systems. Many indigenous creators make the argu argument that even the concept of, quote, characters is impurely oppressive, especially when speaking about our dimension-bending beings. Two types of beings we might meet in indigenous stories are the trickster and the shifter. And I asked the class, has anyone heard of these two beings, either in a literary context, an oral telling? Has anyone out there met one? <laughs> now, as a Salish storyteller, I'm going to offer up my understanding and use of these beings, but it's incredibly important to remember that each Indigenous nation, community member, and family and individual is going to have their own personal understanding. In a way, this is the point of these beings to provoke and engage with you personally, to build a relationship of understanding with you, which is the transformational power of these beings. I also want to add that the, the, even the idea that I could, quote, define these beings would lack humility on my part, that they're even comprehensible, definable, and collapsible. These incredible, powerful beings refuse that academic anal analysis distillation. These beings are alive and permanent, infinite, cosmic, like the universe, impossible to fully grasp, which is why they are so powerfully a part of indigenous storytelling. So a trickster is a mischievous supernatural being who can take the form of different types of animals. Their origin state is most often an animal that can then transform to other animals, human and elemental forms. They often presence themselves to provoke a thought, question, and inquiry. They are neither good nor bad and present more opportunities than provide solutions. They are often curious, pranksters, and provokers. An effective trickster will get you to think about your actions, hopefully before you get yourself in too much trouble. I want to take a moment to unpack what this term presence means. Um, and again, I quote Dr. Lindsay Lachance, uh, the embodied politics of relational indigenous dramaturgy. Presence, and you can find that online, anyone who's listening. 
Google Lindsay Lachance, the embodied politics of relational indigenous dramaturgies. Present, she talks about, is the notions of honoring the timelessness of people's connections to our ancestors. Presencing is a practice that activates moments of resurgence through allowing one's heart, mind, and body to reconnect with ancestral and spiritual knowledge. So a trickster doesn't just present themselves. They presence themselves because they are inextricably connected to indigenous knowledges and ways of being that go beyond this moment. They are nourishing the bond between us by connecting us with them and thus the cosmos and all that breathes into the mystics of a nation and cultural heritage. So what's the quote difference between a trickster and a shifter? A shifter is a human that is able to take the forms of animals, other organisms, and elements. Similarly to a trickster, their presence is often to provoke and create opportunities for decisions to activate transformation for people, other beings, and environments. Some examples are in Thompson Highway's Rest Sisters, the trickster Nanabush, the seagull, the nighthawk, and the bingo caller, in Marie Clement's Copper Thunderbird, we have the Thunderbird. And in Kamloopa, we had a trickster and a shifter, Edith, who transformed into a raven and an ancestor and a coyote presents itself in the earth world to the matriarchs. The exercise that I offer is to write a five-minute story with a trickster and or shapeshifter-esque being. And I think it's really important for people to feel like this is not an appropriation of a literary function, but that we look into all of our own histories, our own legends, our own mythos that involve supernatural beings of some kind. And I think, take a moment to think about your cultural heritage. And if you have any trickster or shifter characters within your legends, within your stories, within your creation stories, Examples I've given were werewolves, ghosts, especially the ones that try and get into the humans, nymphs, which had incredibly strong elemental bonds, dibbics in the Jewish community, uh, Shakespeare's puck. Uh, I remember in the class too, people had said like Elsa from Frozen is in a sense this kind of uh, shifter. She has a shifter ability. And I add, so remember they are supernatural. They go beyond our understanding of nature. They have the ability to transform. They are curious and able to interact with elements. And they're trying to provoke opportunities to see new perspectives. To continue the exercise, I tell the class to take three minutes and write a three to six sentence story, including these beings. So in closing, I want us to assess our understanding of the concepts. I ask how to go, anyone want to share? And everybody wanted to share, which was super fun and amazing. Sh shifters and uh, tricksters are so magnanimous. They just allure, that's their job. And I ask questions when people finish this exercise. What are some of the beings you conjured? What feelings did they evoke? How did they help create more questions? How did they uh, incite more answers? Did you want to create one in your own writing? Or do you have one that already exists within your literary piece? To summarize, supernatural beings in an indigenous paradigm are central to indigenous stories because of the urgent opportunities they presence to assist people in the stories, to reflect, reimagine, trouble and transform the connections they nourish are for all times and the ancestors and they create courageous compulsions for us to ask questions participate and activate
On April 25th on Facebook, I wrote, my academic approach and understandings thus far, it kind of feels like spray painting the ivory tower from the inside, to be honest. A squinty faced emoticon with the tongue sticking out. I wrote, the journey of participating in indigenous knowledge sharing relationship is not about an intellectual leveling up. It's a journey of humbly moving inward, a deepening of knowledge beyond cognitive imperial metrics, and for me, incredibly spiritual. It's heart and spirit work. I think it's incredibly important for me to honor the fact that I did not go back to school to participate deliberately in a hierarchy of centering indigenous, no, uh, sorry, non-indigenous knowledge, imperial knowledge, as uh, the metric for success and or where everyone needs to go. It just happened to be my journey. It happened to be a journey that I felt comfortable with, that I feel supported in, um, and that I feel like my co-knowledge uh, sharers, my professors, my supervisor, honor, respect, and center my indigenous um, knowledge they respect indigenous intelligence and technologies and like I just had a phone call with Kevin about my thesis defense where he was like let's shake it up and I said yeah I really want to trouble the notion of what a thesis defense can be and does look like and they're very supportive of that but I want to make sure because they're in you know in our Lenonic courses we had many beautiful discussions around and challenging ones around the lateral violence or the othering that can happen when indigenous people return to the academy and our community members can be kind of uncomfortable with that because white supremacy and imperial oppression has used education against us to indoctrinate and to kill us when you look at the residential genocide school programs they actually weaponized school as a killing machine and so a lot of our community members and family members and friends can sometimes not understand why we would return to imperial academies to reclaim, uh, resurge, and continue our culture. And it is an incredibly righteous question and uh, perplexion that they have. For institutions and professors, you need to understand this complication and understand the um, multi-pronged relational work we have to do with our community to make sure they understand why, how, and what we will be doing with the knowledge that we receive. For me, a part of being a evolutionist, cultural evolutionist and uh, indigenous theorist was about the fact that a lot of my work uh, moves beyond the Western notion of theatrical creation. I don't just write a play. I don't just direct a show. I don't just act. For me, when it comes to Kamlupa, when it comes to break, when it comes to the mystics, there is a methodology that uh, encompasses and holds the work because I center process as the art practice. I recommend you go and listen to the final episode of season one, but I wanted to... Uh, share something I wrote on April 25th on Facebook. I go, yo, IBPOC nerds, who's got their academic areas of interest they want to share? I want to see what y'all powerful slacks are doing. Mine is living and here it is. And I put a, two emoticons on. One, and please message me. Please, please message me if you know what this one means because I use it as its duality it's got it's either a high five or like a praying thankful gratitude hand gesture I use the brown version and then a heart I hashtag indigenous academy the indigenous theory hashtag indigenous research hashtag indigenous storytelling and I wrote 
My research in areas of interest was also a part of this pedagogical class about curating, refining, and um, sharing our approach to teaching, our teaching philosophies, kind of what pedagogy can be, how a culture teaches. And so I wrote my research in areas of interest are Salish and Indigenous cultural practice and artistic creation with relational and land-based methodologies contributing to Indigenous cultural evolutions. Indigenous creation works dismantling and troubling colonial and neocolonial systems and artistic epistemologies confronting imperial art practice, especially those activating and nourishing Indigenous power by centering joy, Indigenous love, and sovereign creative processes. With a particular focus on the resurgence of Indigenous matriarchal-led systems and frameworks, as well as the amplification of the emancipatory journeys of those enduring state oppression. Mouthful, that is a mouthful of a lot of stuff, but I was so and am so grateful that I was given the space to really think about my quote, research and areas of interest that extend, bleed, echo beyond uh, the academy and that go beyond just my artistic creative practice if there's one thing if you're listening to this podcast and you've listened to them all or maybe you're just listening for the first time that would be very useful for me for you to take away with in terms of how i create it's that it's a, a, a circling spherical process that is rotating on like multiple axes versus a linear timeline of idea, write, play, produce it, get funding, execute, end. There's no linear timeline. It's spherical in nature where service and cultural heritage is at the core of this rotating sphere and then art, practice, um, uh, creation, work, family, all these things kind of lively live uh, on, a, on a rotation around being a good Indigenous community member and serving the community. And understanding how I work in the areas that I'm interested in also keep me accountable. You know, when I talk about dismantling trouble in colonial systems, artistic epistemologies that confront imperial art practice. To me, that's a very clear statement to anyone engaging with my work that that's what I'm particularly interested in. Why? Because that means it dismantles imperial supremacy within my sector. It dismantles white supremacy. It's art that is confronting and addressing and bringing truth to white power that is not disputable within quote Canada the state anymore and I appreciate and want to learn from artists who are deliberately attacking uh, colonial art practice but particularly not just I don't just want to end there I don't just want to end with where people are attacking and dismantling and confronting imperialism but those activating and nourishing indigenous power by centering joy indigenous love and sovereign creative processes not just practice or products but processes i think that's incredibly important because i think there are a lot of indigenous practitioners who are still western result based and then the process becomes very western very oppressive very toxic very colonial very capitalistic very patriarchal but the result is then this indigenous quote indigenous play indigenous movie indigenous film but for me 
that's a misstep. That's almost like it doesn't compute. It doesn't go left brain, right brain. It doesn't go heart spirit. It's actually impossible for me to look at that as an indigenous piece because the process was Western. The process was um, outside of an indigenous paradigm. And it's a really important distinction for me. And so work and practitioners that I'm particularly interested in are centering joy, love, and sovereign creative processes. And we're failing at it. I fail at it all the time just like imperial western artistic leaders fail at taking care of all their artists all the time and that truth is being called to power on social media and within the sector across turtle island which is important so we do fail but i think it's important that i would fail centering these ideas and epistemologies knowing that that is my goal knowing that that is my deliberate clear um, articulation of how i want to create I also go on to finish that it's about the resurgence of matriarchal-led systems. I've been very clear about that, but I also know that even right now I'm theorizing on this concept of how do we remove gender but honor matriarchal understandings and patriarchal understandings that go beyond gender and sexuality outside of the binary, um, and f- as well as the amplica- amplification of emancipatory journeys of those enduring state oppression. That particularly goes to Black people of color, marginalized population, Uh, the crip and disabled community who are also emancipating themselves from enduring state oppression. And that is also something that I'm very interested in so that my work, my theorizing, my ideologies include those outside of the indigenous community who are amplifying and creating those kind of emancipatory liberated journeys. And again, practices, processes um, of creative art practice, social work, Uh, justice work so that is um posted on my facebook i'm going to also put kind of like an academic tab on my website that will have my teaching philosophy my aoi uh, and it'll link to the sales ursing post but if you have any questions or you know any other indigenous people who are working the academy who have other um pieces and theses that i uh, would you think I would be interested in, please go to my website, get in touch and send them to me. I know a lot of master's students are like, can't wait to spend two years working on something only seven people will read because in most master's programs, your thesis is not like mine, where mine is a play where hopefully many people get to see it and experience it. But it is a like 60 page document and I think it's like 120 for a PhD that they will defend to their grad supervisor and committee. And, you know, I have a friend who says, you know, maybe six people might read it. But I'm that nerd that reads it. I actually ask people for their thesis so I can read it in my spare time. You know, I just, uh, I asked Tetsuro Shigematsu for his, and he was like, what? Uh, I'm just, I'm just that uh, nerdy. I pretend to be cool, but I'm not. to end this podcast i'll be reading to you a short essay i wrote entitled the service at lee's when i was a kid i spent my summers on the res in the silkotin in quote god's country some of the elders used to say I was learning gaudy legends in my communion classes at St. Catherine's because my mom didn't want us to get lured into the moonies. My pa used to say, quote, nothing wrong with those Ten Commandments, end quote, as he'd drop us off at the parish. 
I'd spend the next hour wondering what he was doing, and Christ, it was always more fun than this Catholic homily. I'd leave the church by way of my territories, daydreaming about the Silcotine, the place where the sky gives birth to sand dune mountains and wild horses drink from the creek. On the land, I'd help out with haying, cattle branding, and some days my Etsy would take us to Lee's Corner, an unincorporated gas bar diner where a worn-out bull and a retired rodeo clown lived. Sometimes seven grandchildren would pile into his old collector that he spray-painted cobalt blue. He was a real legend, Etsy. Once, he spray-painted the living room cotton candy pink and didn't even move the paintings. Grandma got so mad while us Indian grandbabies triumphantly cheered his accomplishment. At least, the ceremony would start by Etsy ordering a piece of apple pie without ice cream. Then he'd say, you're allowed one one dollar item. I'd spend too long trying to decide if I wanted a treat or a toy, but it didn't matter because the service had already begun. Hunista, anything running? Ha-ah, ha-ah, story. Find any moose, earth paws. Seen the cattle, nod. Old Slurpee Pass, da-ah, da-ah. Cowboys who were Indians composed these Silcotine congregations, and I started learning the relational protocols of my people through unconscious observance. Standing on the old greasy wood planks of Lee's Corner, wearing my light-up L.A. gears, bearing witness to at sea and our ancestral descendants. The real teachings of my communion began. Peace be with you at sea. Such inshallah aguti and with you, granddaughter. We said we weren't going to school ever again. Then we're at school again. And we're spending a lot of time looking into the way that we teach, the way that we learn, the way that we uh, engage with creative practices and processes. And the academy, you know, knock on wood, up until this point has served me well. I hope you found this episode um, useful. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, if you're working on your own pedagogies, please email me and I will get back to you as soon as I can. I'd love to read about your work. I'm very interested in artists, theorists, community workers, uh, practitioners in all sectors working to ground their work within uh, their cultural pedagogies, epistemologies, and ontologies. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been episode five, season two of the Indigenous Cultural Evolutionist. Why, Polnita, from my ancestors to yours. Today's postscript is brought to you by Deadlines and Twitter. I wrote... I push on a deadline like they are the hottest motherfuckers in the bar. I'm going to get consensually close and meet it. But like at closing time. Because I'm shy and procrastination is my drink of choice. (laughs) Today's postscript is dedicated to anybody who, like me, gets so close to a deadline. It's sexy.